every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Hi, welcome to High Turnout Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I'm the county clerk in Boone County, Missouri. And with me is my co-host. Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And we are very excited today to have our first true academic that is, well, in my mind, renowned in elections administration research and provided a lot of really good contributions to the field. How do you want to be addressed? Dr. Gronky or Paul Gronky, or how do you want to be addressed? Just call me Paul. That's fine. My name is Paul Gronky. I'm a professor of political science at Reed College, also the director of the Early Voting Information Center, which uh, was established in 2005. But my undergrad degree, Brianna, was at University of Chicago. And one of the distinctive features of the University of Chicago is uh, professors were called neither professor nor doctor. They were called Mr. and at the time, Mrs., not Ms. Uh, And so that was just a tradition. So whenever I'm usually when I'm Dr. Gronke, it's uh, it's I'm in court. So <laughs> except I did appear with the Secretary of State of Oregon, I was quite honored to appear with our new Secretary Shamia Fagan, and she kept referring to me as Dr. Gronke. So, but Paul is fine with you too. <laughs> well, we are very happy to talk with you today, and we'll ask our first question, which is, what piqued your interest in elections? How did you end up working on elections work? How did I first get involved in elections? So I thought about that. You know, I have been doing research on elections really since an undergraduate. So my first publication was way back in 1985 with my undergraduate mentors at the time. But like a lot of academics, really over the last half century, elections to us was about the individual voter and the individual choice process uh, and the kind of thought process that went into voting. And y'all are very familiar with one of the main findings more recently in that field, which is that partisanship is everything. Like if you're explaining someone's individual vote, partisanship matters more than religion, more than ethnicity, more than race, more than gender, all of these things that used to matter, partisanship is is more important. So let's fast forward through my graduate career and and, the first decade of my academic career at Duke University, and then the 2000 election occurred. Uh, And 2000 election was a game changer in your field. It was a game changer for a lot of academics when we first realized, well, gosh, there's this thing called local election administration. There are 50 states and the District of Columbia, and there are all these statutes and laws and different ways of doing things. So I think um, a lot of academics uh, thought that maybe some of our skills and scientific expertise could help improve the field, understand what happened in 2000, and improve moving forward. So that really was a pivot in my career. I, I changed direction in my career. And then how I got into where I am in terms of local elections is is really my move to Oregon, receiving my first vote by mail ballot in January 2001, looking at it, thinking, what's this? And uh, I cast it. I go back to my class and I noticed that the vote mobilization materials had stopped arriving, like campaign lit, the phone calls, they all stopped. I mentioned this in class and, and one of my students in class who ended up getting a law degree and was a close advisor to Governor Kate Brown. Anyway, he was in my class at the time in undergrad, but was doing campaign work in Oregon. He goes, oh, because that's, they know you cast a ballot. I'm like, what? They know, they know. 
And this whole public record thing, oh, so that just got me thinking about what does it mean if a, if you cast a vote two weeks before the election? Like, what does it mean about how we think about elections, how we think about campaigns? And that slowly pivoted me to think about the people who do the work. And the last thing I'll say is the other major change was my um, relationship with Pew Charitable Trust or Pew Center of the States and the Make Voting Work, which was one of the first big um, nonprofit outreach efforts in the 2000s to try to improve elections conduct and election administration. And at the time, Doug Chapin, who was the head of that initiative, realized that they did not have a presence in early and absentee voting. And so they reached out to me. And that's when I first started meeting y'all strange and your strange community and meeting you at conferences and learning that NAS and NASED, and there's all these other conferences that I didn't know about. Uh, we have to go to Auburn a lot. And so that's really how it started. I think really, it, it's really changed my career in a major way. Um, and I've really enjoyed it at this point in my career, kind of pivot like that and, and do something different and um, really look more at the people side and the administrative side of things and, and less at just the individual voter side. Well, Paul, one of the reasons we were interested in talking with you today, you've done some relatively recent research on the careers of local election officials, but could you maybe fill us in a little bit? You talked about the Early Voting Information Center. Uh, what's that all about? You know, what has it done in the past? What's it up to now? The Early Voting Information Center, in some respects, um, started off as a letterhead and a business card and a lot of chutzpah. That's my uh, my college president at the time, Colin Diver, described it that way, because that's really all it was. But really, the start of the Early Voting Center goes all the way back to Philadelphia uh, and a professional conference. I believe this was in 2003. And Michael Alvarez, who's part of the uh, MIT Caltech Voting Technology Project. And I was at a coffee shop with, with Michael. And I described to him I was going into this sort of vote by mail work. And he goes, no, no, Paul, you don't study vote by mail. You study early voting because early voting at that point, no one was really studying it all. Uh, and academics, like a lot of fields, you know, you're looking for your niches, your areas you can specialize. And that was an area that no one really had a presence. So that's when I formed the center and, and you know, frankly, tried to use it as a way to both um, move forward my own research and, and attract funding. My first funding for EVIC was um, from Carnegie, from Jerry Mannion. You know, what we did at the time really there was focus on uh, voting by mail, some of the processes and procedures. I had partnerships with John Lindback. Uh, John Kaufman was the clerk in Multnomah County, and they were very open and happy to talk with me and excited that someone from Oregon was studying their innovation of voting by mail. And so what we really did at that time is do some early research on the turnout effects and some of the administrative effects. And then, uh, as I said previously, in 2008, I oversaw a grant process for the Pew Center in the States for the Make Voting Work Project. And I oversaw a grant process to try to see what we could learn about uh, voting by mail and early voting. There had been no research, Eric, at that point about the most efficient way to place uh, your early voting or vote centers using, you know, GIS was this new exciting thing. None of that work had been done. We had no idea about where to put drop boxes, you know. I know there's lots of work you guys do in polling places and lots that can be done, but those have been around a long time. Whereas this stuff, it's only been 25, 30 years, and for some of you, much more recent. And so there's a lot. To, so that's where we've done a lot of the work there is try to figure out the best way to, if you're going to go vote by mail or early voting, what's the best way to do it? Have you kind of worked with other organizations or other people on making that kind of translatable to local election authorities that don't always have a social science background or things like that? Because I know the summaries and the reports and all of that are always very, they're easy reads, they're easy to implement and things like that, but getting it into local election administrators' hands, how have you been able to do that? That's been a challenge, Brianna. 
And, and I think that's something that I'm going to continue to try to learn because, you know, I've been in academia my whole life. It's kind of scary. You know, I started doing research when I was 17 years old, when I started at the University of Chicago. You know, translating down to practitioners, um, Doug Chapin was a wonderful mentor. Mindy Moretti, who some of you, many of you probably know or listening to, I'm sorry, uh, now writes for Election Line. You know, John Limbach and Allison McLaughlin. So that group at that period of time really helped me a lot, learn how to uh, do this translation. And so, you know, I just, I try to listen to you. And, and if something isn't clear, uh, I just try to do better. And, you know, I have to say uh, the other thing in the last couple of years is through the work that we've been doing at Democracy Fund is we've been partnered with some, there's some communication firms and some graphic design materials and, and really presenting things that are complicated and translating them in a way that we can all understand. And I'm sure you see these people maybe hopefully come in some of your offices. So you just mentioned listening to local election officials and with some of your recent research, that's really what you've been doing. You've, you've been surveying local election officials on I think a number of topics. I know one thing I, I just saw was a, a survey of the career paths of uh, our longevity of local election officials, things like that. So take us into the, the recent work you've been doing and the survey work you've been doing and, and what, what has come out of that. Absolutely. Thank you. So um, again, I got to give credit where credit is due. Natalie Adona, who is now, I believe she's the assistant clerk recorder in Nevada County, California. And Natalie has had a very interesting career. I got a public administration degree and I'm pretty sure a law degree. She's going to correct me if I don't describe it correctly. And then worked for a while for that group out in Montana. And I'm going to forget their name, but kind of collects information on candidates. And one of the early efforts to try to push out nationally comparable information about candidates and ballot information like that. And so she was working at, at the Democracy Fund. And I'd been affiliated with them for a couple of years. And then we sort of realized that there was this uh, information gap about local election administration, that Eric Fisher, who's very forward thinking, was at the Congressional Research Service, had run a series of surveys in 2000, I think 2005, seven and eight, it might be four, seven and eight, to try to understand the impact of HAVA, the Help America Vote Act, on, on your world, on your careers. And so that work was there, but there have been very few follow-ups. There have been some. Uh, David Kimball, political scientist at, at University of Missouri, St. Louis, Martha Croft, who was at, I believe it was University of Kansas at the time. Now she's at University of North Carolina, Charlotte. So David and Martha did a, some innovative surveys as well. And there's some others around. There'd really been nothing that we thought was, you know, it followed up in the same way that the CRS surveys had done. The other thing is um, we wanted to establish a model where every survey is not sent to every single election official in the country. Like you could sample among election officials so we're not bothering y'all because we do know that you get a lot of surveys. I've sometimes described you as one of the most over-surveyed populations out there. I think academics need to be respectful of your time and not constantly send surveys to you. So we thought, hey, what if we could do a smaller survey and get you know focused pieces of information about the impact of, let's say, uh, having an election during a pandemic, right? You don't have to ask everybody if you get a good sampling scheme. For, I don't want to go into the details. You really want to get bored. Sampling y'all is hard. But so we started out in that project and we convinced the Democracy Fund, the elections team to fund this. So we, we did an initial survey in 2018 to get a sense of readiness for the 2018 election and ask some other questions about kind of the, the situation faced by local election administration. So one of the things that came out immediately was there had been very little change in the demographic profile of the local election official community since the 2000s. Uh, overwhelmingly female, 80%, overwhelmingly uh, white, 
95 to 98% based on our surveys. Not much movement, frankly, in the pay rates. Uh, by some measures, the pay rates have gone down since the 2000s when you adjust for inflation. And so that really got us thinking, Eric, about the, what I would say the people side of it. Um, why have these things not changed? What's going? What's a career path? How do people get into election administration? Do they move out of it? How do they move between jurisdictions? How does that happen? And, and so that's what we we've sort of doubled down in that in the 2019 survey. Asked a lot more about these career paths. And then in 2020, we did some follow-ups on retirements because there were concerns that there, there might be a wave of retirements after 2020. And so what the choices that people are doing is they're sort of moving through this career. I think there's a lot of interests on um, both when I've talked to election officials and state officials and in the broader community that supports the elections community in these career paths. And how can we elevate the voices, but also assure that uh, election administration is a field that people want to go into and want to stay in. And that means we've got to learn about the career paths. Why do people go in? Why do they maybe choose not to go in? We also need to know about what else is going on in local government. Um, and that's a vast area, Eric, that we know very little about. Like, how do your salaries compare? How does your compensation compare? How do your budgets compare? We don't really know much about that. So we're, we're kicking off actually a broader effort on that thing this year. But yeah, that's what we've been doing. That's what we've been really digging down into sort of the, the career path side. I've been really fascinated. I know that you have several, like you said, interest areas that you're going to be digging more into based on what you found. It's a small niche kind of job anyway. And that goes for the people at the top of the field, but also just staff that are working in the offices, whether they're temporary, whether they're part-time, it tends to be a pretty closed circuit of interest um, in bringing new people in. So is one of the things that you are interested in looking at the relationship between the demographics and retirement, because we could find people that are interested in it that are new blood and new generational. But if I don't have positions for them to fill, then I can't hire them into any kind of role in my office to bring them in so that they can get experience and continue learning about things. You know, the good news, I think the listeners of podcast should know whether in the, you know, with the election administrators or the broader community, and I've said this a number of times, there is a lot of interest right now in local administration, local administrators, unlike I think we'll find out, but unlike in the first wave in 2000 through 2004, it, it's looking to be less critical of uh, uh, local election administration and more supportive. Uh, I think that's good. I think that's because your community really did step up this year and hold an election under conditions that were extremely difficult. So I think it's good that we're having that wave of research. But So we've been conducting these surveys among what we call the local election officials uh, we don't use the word chief election official because the term of art in the community that studies your community. So this is Kathleen Hale and Auburn who really you know, spearhead this work, but the chief election officials, the state officials, so the secretary of state or the director. And so the term we use to describe you two are local election officials. But what we've not asked about is your staff. We know some, but we know very little about the staffs. And that means we don't know much about how people move through those staffs. We don't know what the turnover rates are in the staffs. So this is exactly right. We don't know about these retirements. I've heard the word wave of retirements. I was just on a call yesterday where somebody cited a number about the number of officials in California who have retired. And, you know, that number. And I said, I don't know if that's a big number or a small number. I just don't know. You know, 2002, 2003, HAVA, right? Some of us look back at HAVA 
and and say, man, we spent millions and millions of dollars on electronic voting machines, and now we're retiring those machines or we've already retired them. We don't want to make a lot of decisions after this election based on good guesses. We want good research to understand how we can adapt to what happened and how we can move forward as a community. So on the staffing side, Brianna, yes, I think we want we need to know we my research where I hope and where I hope to spur actually research a lot of other academics in partnership with local election officials is exactly the kind of thing you talked about. What are normal retirement rates? What's too high? What's too low? What's the reason for the gendered nature of the profession, the female component? But, you know, let's just put it this way. Hey, here's a career path for women to move up in the ranks of politics. And a lot of us have been interested in that in a very long time. Is that a local election official or is it because it's seen as clerical and women's work? Is that what it is? We don't know. We don't know why that's happening. We're trying to, trying to understand that better. Um, we're trying to understand what the opportunities are like. We're trying to understand how young people see the field and can we make the field more attractive? We just heard about what we, what we don't know from your recent research, what do we know? Uh, what were some of the overarching conclusions, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it? Sure. So we've been rolling out the 2020 results in a series of blog posts, briefing papers that uh, Democracy Fund in our partnership with them have been releasing. And so what do we know? Well, we know that the field is uh, 85 to 90% female and has been really at that level for uh, about 20 years. You know, we know that the field is overwhelmingly white, uh, about 95 to 98%. We know that jurisdiction size matters enormously in so many ways. It's sort of like it, it, it creates differences in the field that we observe in our data. So on the, for the data side of this, it, it's, a, it's a variable or a covariate, whatever you want to call it. But the variation across size within states and across states is just enormous. And so to back up for a second, 10,000, 8 to 10,000, depending on how you're counting, 8 to 10,000 election officials in the country, and 4,500 of them are in, are in two states. So when you sample, right, when you look at the elections field and you just ask, oh, what's the average election official? Okay, the average election official is a 55 to 60-year-old white female that lives in Wisconsin and Michigan. That's the average election, right? So you got to you got to figure out who you're talking about. So once we car start carving it up by size, then we get the average election official. So 250,000 and above, we talk about those jurisdictions. We talk from about 25 or 50 up to 250 and then below 25 and sometimes below five. And that those distinctions really matter. And so you get big differences. So um, for example, the, the gender composition in the field is more balanced. Uh, it's more, there are more males in the field when you get to larger jurisdictions. The pay and the compensation is better. A lot more specialization in the larger offices. Smaller offices, you have people who are doing lots of things. They're wearing lots of hats. Elections official, elections work may only be half their time. Um, but we have found, for example, in our most recent briefing, training is reported as less effective by officials in the large jurisdictions than the small jurisdictions. We're not sure why that's true. We think the reason might be that initial training, you knew a lot of this already because you'd moved up through the office. So we think that's what's going on. Whereas for somebody, maybe in Brianna's case where she's elected, that initial training is really important because she just got elected in and there's a lot for her to learn. Whereas maybe for you, Eric, it seems like, so we know things like that. You know, and the last thing I guess I'll say is 
for all of, of some of the homogeneity on some of the demographics, local election officials primarily come from these 10,000 locations. And so they reflect in some ways the diversity of America in their beliefs and their values and their attitudes. And so you see that in some of the, the policy beliefs. So we've asked local election officials how confident they are in the integrity of the ballot count. Local level, y'all are way up. You're really high, well beyond the public. You have high levels of confidence in the integrity of the ballot count in your state. Your confidence levels as a population in the national count is lower. It's not as low as the public at large, but it is lower. And that's because y'all are people too, right? So there's ways that local election officials look like the public at large as other ways that, of course, they have expertise and sort of partitioning those apart is, is one of the things we're working on. And you kind of hit on it and we talked about it earlier, but I wanted to give you the entry point to talking about size disparities and what impact that's had on things. And also, so somebody, I saw somebody else ask this on Twitter and you brought it up and I thought, well, great, you'll have the answer to it. Why is there a difference in estimation? Why does it range from 8,000 to 10,000? What's the definitional difference? Yeah, that one we finally ran down, <laughs> First time we did the survey, we had to run that one down. So the 10,000 estimate, the 10,000 number that you hear, uh, and Kimball Brace, who some of you may know, I, Kim may be retired at this point, but Kim Brace, you know, important figure in our field, did a lot of work in redistricting and, you know, was a, of a generation around, you know, 20 years ago and, and, you know, still active, but when getting data was real hard on local jurisdictions and getting information to local officials and state officials for the redistricting process was very difficult. Um, hard to be computerized. So Kim used to use that 10,000 number a lot. Uh, uh, the Government Accountability Office um, did us uh, some work on a local election administration. They used a 10,000 number. The 10,000 number, the real key difference is Minnesota. So if you consider Minnesota to be a sub-county level state, then you get to 10,000. And the way you get there is if you're looking for the official that makes decisions about deployment of technology, that's what the GAO did. And I think with, with Kim Brace, um, it's where the redistricting lines get drawn. If you look at the official who makes the decisions about overall election administration, so deployment of the machines, you know, precincts, poll workers, things like that, you get the 8,000 number. And it really does come down to Minnesota. How are you going to count Minnesota? Is Minnesota county level state? I know it's funny, isn't it, Eric? It's like, it all comes down to Midwest. <laughs> I've been telling my students this, you know, every election that I remember, and I've been following elections a long time, seems to come down to the Midwest. So the size different matters because from a sort of data science perspective, because, uh, well, the number, the way we describe it, I'll say 80-20, but that's not really right. It's not the 80-20 problem. It's the 75-8 problem. That's how we word it in our briefers. 75% of the population is serviced by 8% of the LEOs and the other 82%, whatever, of the sort of the other portion of the population. So you've got a, a relatively small proportion of the local election official community that is servicing, you know, most of the voters, three quarters of the voters. Um, so if you're trying to improve election administration, what do you do? Do you just focus on, you know, that 8%? You know, do you focus on Los Angeles, Harris County, you know, uh, Maricopa? Do you do that? But then you're leaving aside all of the other officials nationwide. But then how do you roll out services and improvements to those smaller jurisdictions? And, you know, let's face it, there are deep political divides in our country right now. And those political divides line up 
with the difference that we just talked about, Brianna. They line up with metropolitan areas, urban areas in the country. And so if you ignore those non-urban suburban areas, non-metropolitan areas, then you're gonna have the parts of the country where there's a lot of suspicion and distrust are gonna be the same parts of the country where you're not rolling out those improvements. So yeah, just explain, we don't even tell people, we've started to roll out our results and we always try to report things broken down by jurisdiction size because you just have to, because so many things seem to vary by jurisdiction size. In our research, applied research effort, we're really trying to reach out to clerks from the smaller counties and the mid-sized counties um, because they have needs too. And, and we don't wanna ignore that part of the community. And last thing I'll say is, you know, I don't know if there's going to be mobility between jurisdictions. I know there's some, but I think it's a good thing if there is. And so we want some of that shared resource, shared information to move between the counties. But yeah, jurisdiction size is just, it's overwhelmingly important in this community. You just always have to keep it in mind. I think your remarks there are really interesting about that, Paul, because in, in Missouri, St. Louis County, although nationally we're not a huge county, we are by far the largest in Missouri. And so I quite often find myself looking to other similar sized counties in other states to kind of bounce ideas off of, commiserate things like that. Because I, I'm often envious of, because so much revolves around the state associations, right? And, you know, we all meet, you know, in most states every year, uh, all the counties and our jurisdictions in each state meet. And, um, you know, I'm envious of, you know, like Florida or California or Texas or Ohio, where there are several counties of, a larger size and they they have a shared set of statutes and so they can uh talk to each other about how they navigate those in my case i feel like i really don't have anybody to kind of bounce things off of in terms of our unique challenges with our size under our statutory framework in missouri so and i feel like when i talk to other counties in missouri they're like oh yeah well you know you deal with that we don't deal with that kind of thing and maybe your research can bring that more to light and and help kind of bridge that gap. The role of the associations is something we are very interested in. Uh, it's something we don't know much about. I'm trying to think about the kind of applied research that I can either um, commission. I don't think we'll probably get this done with this research initiative, but we'll uh, set up a research, um, a research agenda down the road. So I think we need to do some either case studies or investigations of successful state associations and try to roll that out to other states to figure out what works. We, we, wrote, we wrote this, we just completed this report on, on training and cybersecurity preparedness and stuff. And I put in a couple extra lines that everyone will know is my language, but it, it came from some uh, focus group interviews that we conducted. And the thing about the training is the training is not just learning new skills, it's meeting people, it's building networks and building communities. And I am convinced that that community building side and that networking side is very important to uh, your field. It's very important for election administrators to have those networks. And that this year was particularly difficult because those networks were frayed or disappeared for people. So I think those networks and figuring out what works Eric is, is gonna be really important and we need to learn a lot more about that. And I think we need to foster the development of those networks. I've told folks, um, I don't use the word professionalize anymore when I talk about local election administration because I don't think that's the right word. But what I do use is profession. We need to build a sense of a profession and, and a professions have things like shared interests. They might have a national uh, association representing their interests. 
but you know, professions have contacts, they have ethos. That's, I think, what we need to foster. But expertise and growth, that's good. But yeah, we need a profession. That last point you made about professional networks, has your research tried to quantify in any way how important that is to election administrators? No, we haven't. I think that'll be um, on our future uh, agenda, I believe. We ask people about uh, the professional associations and whether they have are valuable. Uh, we asked about the information that the local officials used in the pandemic and in previous years. Not surprisingly, your state associations are ranked most highly. Uh, state election directors are ranked highly. I don't know. Under the pandemic, the state health authority was ranked highly. The EAC and some of the federal um, are ranked lower, but we believe that's simply because, you know, it's the state, a lot of their information goes through the state directors and comes down to you. I've just learned over the years that there's some associations, uh, Colorado and California stand out and where the LEOs have told us that they feel like the state, is, that they have a voice in the state legislative discussions because of their association. And I think that's more what we want to foster is a sense of ownership and power, really, and voice at the state legislative level. You know, even if your voice is not determinative, I think you want to be listened to. I think you should be listened to. Y'all actually are the experts on this, and, you know, you, you do it every day. So um, we're trying to look to some of those to see what works and you know, what works well, what maybe works less well. Well, and the other thing, in Missouri at least, that is really interesting is the valuation of our counties is what determines what our county clerks do. Valuation over a certain amount of money, you become a first-class county. First-class county, we do elections and it becomes a very large portion of our job because we don't have to be the financial officers for the county. The less valuation you have, then you become more of the budgetary officer role. And so you get a lot of county clerks in those positions that aren't necessarily interested in elections because they didn't run for clerk because they cared about elections. They cared about the financial health of the county and the budget. Maybe part of what you're seeing too is training on 100% elections is not helpful for local jurisdictions. So there's a surge of interest, as I said, in local election administration. You know, I was just at Bennett's and professional conferences a lot of new faces, great to see a you know, more diverse um, set of scholars studying this field. Like I'm trying to encourage that in my research agenda to new ideas, new faces, broaden the field of academics, match those academics with um, election officials. But one of the things that happens when somebody comes into the field is like, it's complicated. Part of what we're trying to do with our research effort, frankly, is uh, crack open this gold mine of data that we've collected about uh, the surveys over the last few years and let other people use it, analyze it, but also try to bring together in a single place a lot of the information about states and localities that it, that becomes a hurdle. I didn't know that about valuation. What you just said, Brianna, that might be fundamentally important in explaining the association functioning in Missouri. I'm not saying it is or isn't, but it might be because of that line about valuation. I had no idea because I haven't looked at Missouri yet. And so unless we know those things, I think it's going to be hard. So um, yeah, that's, that's a really good story. Thank you. And I hope that with all of our efforts in this podcast and the work that's going on, you know, we can elevate the community and you know, increase the compensation, make sure the budgets are satisfactory. We can't have democracy on the cheap.
It's democracy, okay? It's not that expensive if you just, but you got to invest resources in these people and in the personnel, and you can't keep thrusting new responsibilities on you. Now suddenly you have to be social media masters. Wow, great, thanks. <laughs> now I got a new job. So yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's tough times. It was a tough year, but um, I hope we're going to be able to navigate forward and you know see improvements down the road. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins. A big thanks to Paul Gronke from Reed College for being our guest today. Hope you enjoyed it and hope you tune in next time to High Turnout, Wide Margins. <laughs>